It's the perfect summery day. Like the sun is out, it's really sunshiny. It's that perfect temperature where you can sit outside and just like read a book and enjoy yourself in the sun for hours without actually getting sunburned because you know, it's still the UK. But above the sound of a family having a barbecue and playing their music and laughing is a sound of ambulances. And it's, it's so eerie. It's such an eerie, strange summer. So I have these moments where I'm just outside, like where I'm just in the house and I'll be working on an assignment or I'll be in the garden reading a book and just hanging out with my little sister who, whose school has also been closed because of the lockdown. And I'll forget, like I'll forget why I'm at home in the middle of the springtime, why I'm not at uni. And then I go outside and I'll listen to the sound of a barbecue and I hear the sound of the ambulance. And then I remember. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know. And, and I continue to shake hands. And uh, uh, I think it's very important that we, you know, people obviously can make up their own minds. I think that Matt has said that people must make up their own minds. Four weeks later. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is tonight in intensive care at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, suffering from the effects of coronavirus. Eight weeks later. Final slide, next slide please, shows the number of people who have sadly lost their lives. And this number stands at 40,261 on the latest information, which is 357 higher than yesterday. We are on week 12 of lockdown, and while restrictions are starting to ease up and some supposedly anti-establishment high-level ranking government advisers are trying to justify their sightseeing trips to castles and woodlands, for most of us, things have hardly gone back to normal. And if there's one group of students, or in this case, newly qualified graduates, who are the furthest away from normal, that would be the students who have begun their careers in healthcare on the front line. You are listening to Class of 2020, a podcast about studying, graduating, and coming of age in the midst of the pandemic. In this week's episode, I'm gonna be speaking to healthcare students and recently qualified NHS workers about their experiences of starting their careers in such an uncertain time. From pharmacists to junior doctors, healthcare assistants to trainee dispensers, I'm gonna be speaking to the students and recent graduates on the front line talking to them about the challenges they're facing, the lessons they're learning, and their hopes for the next couple of months. On the front line. So Thursday, May 28th marked our 10th and final Thursday night clap for our carers. If you don't live in the UK and aren't familiar with it, it was basically a nationwide event where people stood outside their houses and clapped for the NHS and frontline workers around the country. When I first stood outside my house and listened to the sounds of my whole street clapping and cheering, I couldn't help but feel something. It's rare that the country comes together to celebrate or thank people in such a communal way. 
But despite how nice it felt to feel part of something bigger than myself, I know that while clapping is nice, it's not enough to spark real long-lasting change. I recorded most of the interviews in this podcast at the beginning of April, and since then, so much has changed. The UK has become the second worst coronavirus-affected country in the world, and the concerns of the healthcare students and graduates you're going to hear from today have come to reality. There have been countless cases of inadequate PPE, a report into the disproportionate deaths of BAME healthcare workers, and we've witnessed a truly devastating crisis in our care homes. The NHS has been underfunded for the past 10 years, and we're feeling the effects now more than ever. So in this week's episode, I decided to speak to a few other students and recent graduates who have begun work on the front line in the midst of this crisis to get a better understanding of what life on the front line is really like. My name is Eleni Tsiora. I'm actually an EU student, so I'm originally from Greece. I moved here in 2016. I'm, well, tomorrow I actually finish my university degree, biomedical science. My name is Anza Ahmed. I study at the University of Surrey. Hi everyone, my name is Brandon and I studied pharmacy at KU. So first, I spoke to Brandon about his journey to university after having had a difficult experience at sixth form. So basically, I moved to the UK when I was 15. Some of my teachers, they're kind of like, they'd instilled the mentality that like, you're not clever enough. I was told like, I'll be so lucky get an interview for pharmacy, let alone an offer. So, you know, when I got that unconditional offer, it was like a big surprise to myself and to others. But I think at that point, I started believing that maybe I could achieve what I want. So when I came to uni, it was kind of like, you know, I full on had like a proper soul for like 30 minutes, just realizing that this is what I've always wanted and God has allowed me to get where I am. But I'm not going to lie to you, the first few weeks were tough because like the imposter syndrome was real. Like, you know, like you're coming from your typical state school and stuff like that. And then like you're surrounded by people wearing their grammar school these people wearing their private school hoodies and stuff like that so at start it was hard to kind of like tell myself that I'm here because I belong here I'm just as equally talented as these people we had exams in like November and surprisingly I did extremely well in them so that kind of helped me shake off the imposter syndrome and realize that you know what I belong here. So over the four years, it was a mess of me like telling myself that you're here because you belong here. And then I spoke to Anza, a business student who took an unconventional route into pharmacy when his seasonal Christmas job at Boots became a full-time job on the front line. They gave me a two-week contract uh, to work as a customer assistant. And I was like, oh, two weeks, that's not enough. I need more than that. So then I worked really hard, like serving customers and making sure all the uh, shop floor was stocked up and like the, the stock room was all filled up and everything. Orders were coming in on time and stuff. And I think I sort of proved myself and they're like, okay, we'll keep you for a bit longer. So then they kept me on till February. And then what happened is the pandemic struck and all of our staff got furloughed. But then uh, they asked me if I wanted to work in pharmacy. And I was like, okay, I mean, I can give that a try. The first two weeks when I was working in pharmacy, it was all these new medical names and all these new medical conditions. And usually when I'm serving customers, customers come up to me and they're like, oh, uh, Anza, I've got a date tonight. What perfume should I wear? Oh, Anza, I've got this uh, family band, what should I wear? 
now I get people coming in and saying, oh, Anza, my feet, my feet are hurting. What should I do? Or Anza, my back's aching so much. And it was just a complete change of the world. And then I spoke to Eleni, a biomedical student from Greece who decided to stay in her university town and work in the NHS through the pandemic. I decided instead of going back home when all of this started, I thought it would be a good good thing to stay here and help out where I can. What I'm doing is I'm working as a healthcare assistant at the hospital. Um, so it has to do a lot with patients' day-to-day needs, like personal care, helping them eat, if that's a requirement, and helping them with mental care as well, if that makes sense, like supporting them, having a chat with them. Um, I do some A&E shifts as well which is quite coronavirus heavy right now. So sometimes I do the half shifts, which can be from six to eight hours. Or if I do a long day, which is 12 hours, um, that is an intense shift. We'll start out by making sure that everyone's bed sheets are changed, making sure that everyone is comfortable. Um, We help out our, um, our patients with personal care. So, you know, brushing their teeth, having a wash, whatever they wanna do. Um, making sure they eat all of their breakfast and it does depend on because a lot of people are coronavirus positive so we still do everything we need to do with them we just wear our PPE just to protect ourselves and protect them as well yeah but it's just a day of helping patients on the wards I was able to learn quite quickly because of the amount of people we had coming in and the amount of different areas we were looking at the first two weeks were a bit stressful but then eventually I sort of got used to it and I started getting faster at uh, doing uh, like stocking up medicines or faster at just like helping customers out and I was able to sort of give advice as well at this point. So I still had the pharmacist with me sort of like supervising me, seeing that I'm doing okay and stuff. Eventually with that knowledge as well as first-hand experience in that pharmacy setting I was able to pick up quite a lot of things and eventually I became I would say sort of okay at doing it. And then before you know it, I'd done more than 400 hours at the pharmacy. And I was like, oh, like, this is crazy. Like, you know, and then um, they've now put me on a dispensing course with the NHS. So now after I complete this dispensing course, I'll be able to um, basically do everything in a pharmacy that my role can entail, unless it's the role that the pharmacist has to do specifically. But yeah, that's right really. So without me knowing it, within the last three months, I'm now working in a pharmacy and I'm just pouring my heart out to make sure that everyone's okay, all our patients are taken care of, and to make sure that everyone just passes through this time as a community as best as we can. Then I spoke to a newly qualified junior doctor. Like lots of people in the country, I've got into the habit of watching the daily COVID-19 briefings. Um, I was sat here and then obviously Matt Hancock was doing the announcement, so I assumed that it would be something related to the health service. And then out of nowhere, he mentioned 5,500 medical students are due to start on the front line from Monday. And I ran downstairs to my housemates and was like, have you heard this? I think we might be being conscripted. My name is Stephen Knowles. As of two days ago, I'm now Dr. Stephen Knowles because I just finished medical school at Imperial College London. And in the next couple of weeks, I will hopefully be starting early in the NHS to help with the fight against COVID-19. I'm always curious to find out the reasons why people went into the careers they're in, especially when it comes to careers rooted in service. So I spoke to Stephen about where his passion for becoming a doctor began. I think that I have the the most stereotypical answer that anyone has, and it's the answer that when you go to do your interview for medical school, they discourage you from giving because it's the obvious answer. But for me, it was 
Um, I had a love of science. I always found myself reading more about biology and particularly human biology in school. And my, my dad, who um, used to be a fireman, embedded in me this kind of sense of like public duty. And so I knew from an early age that whatever I did, I wanted to be humanitarian and to have a positive impact on the world. And I suppose that medicine was the most logical way to put those two interests together. Then we talked about the suddenness in which junior doctors were told they would be qualifying months earlier than they were supposed to. So it came as a, a, a complete surprise. As far as we could tell, the GMC, so the General Medical Council, and everyone that's responsible for registering doctors, there'd been no signs up until then, but they were going to register us early. So yeah, we were very shell-shocked at There's been a lot of talk about junior doctors being rushed onto the front line and a lot of misinformation that Stephen wanted to clear up. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that it's being reported in the media is maybe slightly misleading because people are talking about medical students being rushed through finals. And actually, I think that that's quite an inaccurate picture because I've been quite involved in supporting the well-being of medical students throughout my time at uni. And the way that I always talk about medical school is that it's a marathon. And so for the last five or six years, year upon year, we've been going at the same pace that any other medical student would go at at any other medical school in any other ordinary time. The same kind of checks that are in place about safety and about um, competence and skills have still been there for 95% of our medical training. And it's just the last 5% that we're now sprinting towards the finish line. And the reason why we're doing that is because we, we recognise that we have undergone this transition from student into doctor. And so we want to get out and use those skills to help. Of course, we recognise the limits of our competence, the limits of our knowledge. And a really essential component of medical education is knowing when to reach for more senior support. And nobody would be graduated if they weren't capable of doing that. So I feel ready to help however possible. And I acknowledge that a big part of that will be understanding the limits of my own skills at the moment and then seeking support. I spoke to Stephen back in April and since then a lot has changed. But when we talked, I asked him about his concerns when it came to joining the front line in such an uncertain time. There's the things that any healthcare worker is going to be concerned about over the next few months. And I do think it's important to mention them. Though people have spoken in the media about personal protective equipment, I'm quite concerned that the standards don't seem to be up to the World Health Organization's definitions of what adequate PPE should be. There's also stories coming through that doctors will have equipment one day and then there's no guarantee it'll be there the next day with the next set of patients. And so there's the very real risk, you know, these young doctors, especially if they've got an underlying health condition, could be putting their own life on the line to look after other people. So, you know, I think that it's important that we stress that to look after other people, you've got to look after yourself. And there needs to be more done really to get us the equipment that we need to look after ourselves. But beyond that, I think the next few weeks will just be about us sticking together, keeping an eye on one another and uh, reaching out to our friends and making sure that we check in with them as regularly as possible. Because I think it is going to be difficult. Starting as a foundation doctor is difficult anyway. And then if you compound it with these circumstances, I think it's going to be really challenging times for us. I think Stephen hit the nail right on the head there and spoke to the concerns that a lot of newly qualified healthcare workers on the front line have experienced over the last couple of weeks. That beginning your career in healthcare is difficult in a normal year, but starting that career in the midst of a pandemic is even more challenging. The newly qualified healthcare workers that have started on the front line this year are facing all the same challenges that they would in a normal year, but these challenges have been compounded by the shortage of adequate PPE. The uncertainty 
uncertainty of working face-to-face with a virus we don't fully understand yet, and the strain that this pandemic has put on an already stretched and underfunded healthcare system. And so I reached out to someone who has been working in the NHS for a couple of years to find out how she is coping with working in the middle of a pandemic and to ask her what advice she would give to newly qualified healthcare workers. So my name's Amelie, Amelie Nusa. I really struggle to say Dr. Amelie Nusa, so I'm just going to ignore that for a second. Um, but I am a junior doctor in my fourth year of work. I'm also a podcaster as well, and also just like a loving life, millennial, spending way too much money, not saving enough. So when did you realise you wanted to become a doctor? So basically, I grew up in Hertfordshire. My dad's a doctor. He's he's the only actual doctor in the family. He grew up in a village in Nigeria, and he had like all the things against him, but I really had all the privileges. So my dad was a doctor. I went to a really good school. I really liked science and maths and like every subject. I found school super easy. And I just happened to do the right subject. So I was doing like maths, biology, chemistry, and also politics. And when your dad's a doctor, no one kind of stops you from being like, hey, do medicine. So I was like, maybe I'll do medicine. I've already got the work experience. And I applied for it. All my teachers obviously encouraged me. I didn't think that hard about it. And then, yeah, I sort of found myself in med school and here I am. So could you tell us about some of your highlights of your medical school experience? Um, So I think I almost did everything I could to like not be a real medical student. Um, And I think this is just something I've always done in my life. Always like just gone after what I've loved and what I've enjoyed and what I like naturally found myself inclined to. So in medical school, I had loads of extracurriculars, which is very similar to lots of doctors and medical students before they actually go into medical school. They're doing all the things like sports, everything like arts. But as soon as they get into medical school, there's this weird thing where you just only study. Hmm. So I kind of like almost like rebelled against that. But that was just like my natural inclination too. So when I was at med school, I started up a big run club and that was really fun. We used to have literally like about 100 people come every week. Um, and I worked with like a lot of companies when I was doing that in med school. So it just taught me a lot about media, community, building, sponsorship and all of that random stuff. Um, but also just at med school, you tend to like get involved in people's lives and because you're working so closely with your colleagues in medical school and you have like 500 600 people that are in your year but also when you're like going into hospital meeting patients you're speaking to people I'm naturally nosy and I love that aspect of it yeah amazing so I was listening to your podcast and there's an episode where you mentioned Black Wednesday yeah (laughs) and you mentioned Black Wednesday in that first month of being a junior doctor so what were like your first few months of being a junior doctor like because I can imagine it being very intense going from kind of like being a student having that extra supervision to being a little bit more independent well quite a bit more independent hi it's editing referral i just wanted to explain that black wednesday is the name given to the wednesday in august when newly qualified doctors start work because research has shown that patients admitted on the first wednesday in august were six percent more likely to die than those admitted the week before it's so funny when they call it black wednesday because actually it's such like these kind of things just like horrify medical students you're like so hold on when I start my job as a doctor for the first time, is that actually meant to be the time that people are meant to die in the UK just because new people have started? Yeah. But obviously you have to think about like when you're starting like a new place with a completely new team, 
it's not just the F1s that it, it affects, it's actually the whole entire team. So it's not down to new doctors starting, it's yeah. down to whole new systems beginning from scratch once again. So it shows you the inherent value of having like a team and a team that's supportive. Um, but when I started, I started in Essex in Basildon, a hospital that in Essex. And the great thing about Basildon, like unlike working in London, you get to live near the hospital, you get the use of like small town living, all the F1s start together, live together, and you just really get to like continue your university experience. So it felt really good that we all were in the same boat, even though we were terrified because you don't work before you start up as a doctor, unlike nurses. Yeah, definitely. So what was like the most challenging part of those first couple of months of being an F1 doctor? Um, I think it's just about like learning the systems because the interesting thing as a doctor, you still like if you were to put this weird hierarchy as we do in every profession, you kind of sit at the top of the hierarchy when and that's like not intentional. It's just like the way our weird ass world works. So like maybe like the nurses and the healthcare assistants and the porters and the radiographers, everyone who knows way more than you do may be put just below you in the mind of a patient mm. so you've got all this like um responsibility and expectation but the difficulty is that you don't know that much and you're also scared because everyone kind of like almost like looks down at you because you've only just started um so I found that little that part challenging stepping into like a role with big responsibility but also not knowing what to do but I think what's interesting is you learn so much from that and you just learn to ask and you learn to be really aware of what you're um, what you're able to do. And I think that's like a really powerful thing as you continue your career. You don't forget to ask questions. You don't forget to um, not look embarrassed when you're asking what like the obvious things are. So I think doctors are really good at doing that now. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned being in Basildon and living with other F1 doctors. So what impact would you say that like having that community of junior doctors had on your experience? Oh my gosh, so important, so important. I think the difficult thing is after you've left medical school, you apply for lots of jobs. So you would rank the whole of the UK. And then by the time you've ranked the whole of the UK, you get put into a deanery. So that's just like a section of lots of different, sorry, a section of the UK, and it'll have a couple of different hospitals in it. And then within that, you've got lots of jobs you rank. So I ranked maybe around 300, 400 jobs, which is also an impossible task to ask anyone to do. Because yeah. that's like, that's ranking six different rotations across like loads of different hospitals. It like just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So by the time you get there, you're probably in a place that you didn't really expect to be in, doing jobs that you don't really expect to do. And you kind of can feel really like invisible and like lost within that system. So just having a core group of like 30, 40 people that were in the same position as me was really, really helpful. And I still love all my Basildon F1 colleagues to this day. And if I see them in like new hospitals, we're like, guys!" it gets so exciting. Yeah. It's like just having constant, constant reunions all the time. Yeah, definitely. So what would you say was the most like the biggest lesson that you took away from those first few years as an F1, F2 doctor? It's interesting because you're also like learning how to be an adult during those two years as well. I think for me, the biggest lesson that I've learned is setting boundaries for myself. I'm really clear on setting boundaries and that's not something I was good at doing in my first or maybe even second year of work. But people will try and push you to do do things or to stay later at work 
or to keep working like really, really hard. So you like don't take like natural breaks. But those things are almost like counterintuitive. The more tired you are, the more hungry you are, the more like you're like the more that you are shorter with your patients and the more that you don't feel like energetic or getting your work done as fast. So those things are really counterintuitive, but there's some like weird, like weird thing that like doctors or your seniors might think that, okay, just keep working, working, working really hard, stay late, late, late. And they don't realize that's actually not benefiting the team. It's not benefiting your patients. And those are the kind of things that just like make you like fall to the wayside. So like now in this COVID-19 time, when I'm hearing people talk about us as heroes, you have to be like, yo, wait a minute, we're all human beings. And the human, the humanness of the situation is that we need to be fed, we need to be watered, we need to rest, and, and we need to feel happy and valued. So setting really clear boundaries for myself has been really important. I will always have my lunch break. I will always make sure I rest. If I'm generally feeling sick at home, I will call my team. And I don't like doing this, but I will say that I'm unable to come in. And people t- tend to respect you and respect and understand what your desires are. So if you're not able to verbalize those, I think you can kind of do yourself a disservice. No, definitely. And I think that's like great advice for not even just junior doctors, but anyone who's starting out in a career. Because like me, I don't work in healthcare, but like when I've done internships and jobs, I think in those first few months, there's this like desire to say yes to everything and do everything because you want to be seen as like being the person who says yes to things. But when it starts, it like will naturally start to have an effect on you. And then your work suffers as a result of being too available and saying yes to too many things. So that's really good advice. Burnout is so real. In every single career, burnout is so real. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about now, like working in the midst of like this COVID-19 pandemic. So what has your um, experience of being an A&E doctor been like in the past couple of months? So initially we had loads and loads of patients coming in. We'd have the normal amount of patients, but then we'd also have the people who were anxious about COVID-19. And then there was a time when that dropped off after lockdown, when people were too scared to come into hospitals into fear of like catching a disease. And then we saw our patients change. So initially we saw lots of patients who were like mentally unwell or struggling because they'd lost their jobs um, or they were no longer, even though they were the breadwinner of the family, they could no longer support their family or people who were trying to who attempted suicide because obviously these kind of situations can take those people on the very edge right off the edge so we've seen a lot of people like that initially and then it kind of changed where we've seen really 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 sick people and not really just sick people from covid but people who were sick from other conditions because they were sitting at home trying to self-treat instead of coming in to hospital when they should have come in for an emergency Mm. and the interesting thing then is that we actually had very few patients but they were just all really sick. And now it's kind of balancing out a little bit where we're getting the people who aren't able, who've missed all their old appointments um, or the ones that appointments have got rescheduled, have very legitimate concerns and then we're seeing them and spending a lot more time with them. Mm -hmm. So I've really enjoyed the aspect of being able to spend lots of time with my patients and reassuring them and doing relevant tests and being like, you'll be okay for another however many months or whatever. Now that's really interesting it's nice to hear like a point of view from someone who 
you're seeing it from different hospitals like I feel like obviously I'm not a doctor but I feel like in one fixed hospital in one fixed place you only see like a certain amount of issues but when you're seeing it you're getting like a broader sense of what it's like in the city as opposed to just in that local hospital. London's obviously a weird place so yeah. for our people who are on the edge of London they're really on the edge and what mm. I mean by like they're just like sitting on top of the poverty line. So as soon as you've like lost your job or you can't go to work or your children have to like work, I'm sorry, have to work from home and you have to school them. Mm. Those people are the ones that are really stretched. So I feel really privileged to be in my situation right now. No, definitely. So you kind of mentioned earlier that you like love chatting to people and as a doctor, like communication is a really important thing to like really get to know all of the people who you speak to. But I feel, and this could be an assumption, but when you're speaking to a lot of people, getting to really know their lives, seeing their health issues, I feel like there's a certain amount of those personal issues that you might like subconsciously take home with you and like feel a little bit of underlying stress about. So how have you as a doctor, like not just during the past couple of months, but like over the course of your career, managed to look after your mental health and if possible, like separate the work personal size of your life from your actual personal life to like look after yourself? So that comes back to boundaries again. Mm. And I'm really clear on boundaries for myself. So you can have these emotional conversations with patients, but what's also important is to like reflect on them or almost like find a colleague to debrief with. And debriefing doesn't have to look very formal. It can just be calling up a friend and being like, oh my gosh, this happened today. Oh, can we talk through some of the issues? And it just really happens naturally as a doctor. So I think it is really important to have your colleagues. And that's why my F1 year, it was so important to have people who had gone through really similar things to me because they'd be able to give me advice or they'd just be able to hear me out because sometimes you don't always need an answer. Um, yeah, I think I think it keeps coming back to like boundaries and like understanding of self and also understanding how much transference happens. Mm -hmm. So like um, when I did my psychiatry job in my F2 year, you're obviously having really deep, difficult conversations that you've never had before because yeah. the funny thing is as a med as a first year doctor or second year doctor you're having all these experiences for the absolute first time just as much as someone else who's like outside medicine would be like freaked out about those conversations yeah. so are we. so it's just also about understanding that there are seniors who are above you who can help you um, approach those conversations or tell you how to deal with it and in psychiatry they're really good you have to debrief with your senior um at least once a week and that's literally like a 30 45 minute like conversation where you're just like purging all yeah. the difficult stuff of the week so yeah I learned a lot from that placement in particular and then you've kind of answered this question throughout the interview but my final question was going to be as someone who is a doctor who's been in this for a few years what advice would you give to junior doctors who have just started work or about to start work in the next couple of weeks I would say, okay, I don't even know which like lane to go down, but I think the lane to go down that I think is really, really important for me um, is to ask for what you need. If you feel like you're really struggling, that's when you speak to someone trusted and ask for what you need, because otherwise like the, the machine just takes you with it. And what I mean by the machine is like every day it might there'll be always loads and loads of demands and there's loads of jobs that you can get done during the day. But the thing is, if you don't have to do it in that day, you just don't have to do it. And that's not you being lazy, that's you doing the best for your patients by also looking after yourself. And I think there's also a real need for you to take like all your humanity into your job. 
and also focusing on the things that you make you enjoy life. So like in my first F1 year, I made sure that I like continued running and I like ran a marathon at the end of the year, but that's only because I liked running a long distance at the time. I have changed since then. (laughs) (laughs) It's really important to like go out, have fun with your colleagues. It's really important to like appreciate the nurses, explain to them how much you appreciate them because otherwise you're just calling them in your time of need all the time and you're not really recognizing all the hard work that they're putting in. So I think just being really like human at work is so important and yeah, I love my colleagues. Don't love them all, <laughs> but I, when I do love my colleagues, I do try and share that with them. What have you learned in the time that you've been working on the front line? Being selfless, I think learning to to you know put other people in front of myself but also thinking about myself at the same time because you do also have to be protective of the people you're working with but you need to protect yourself as well so figuring out that balance in between you know what what can i do to help them but what can i also do to protect myself and protect the people i live with when you look back at these years you you get to to realize that it's more like being on the correct side of history realizing that when the pandemic started you went out there you helped people but also like a bit left wrecking like what if i get corona on the woods at the beginning i couldn't handle wearing the mask for so many hours as well um but i'm used to it now and it's kind of incorporated into my oh you know i'll go to the hospital i'll pop my mask on i'll put my gloves on and you just kind of you get on with it because you can't really do anything else and i just want to help people as much as i can now like everybody is starting to respect the NHS, everybody's starting to show love to the NHS. So that's kind of like good. And I feel like the NHS teams together, they're starting to like bond. They're starting to see like the bigger picture together rather than seeing what nurses do alone, what pharmacists do alone, what physios do alone. I feel like now everybody is just like starting to actually get the bigger picture. You know, healthcare workers are extremely valuable, whether you're a healthcare assistant, a doctor, a consultant, a midwife, a nurse, everyone. I think people are starting to, to understand more of how every single role is important and how everyone working together and everyone needs to be respected in the same way. We talk a lot about going back to normal, wishing that life could go back to how it was before the pandemic began. And while I'll be the first to admit that I can't wait to be able to go out, go on holiday, hang out with my friends and enjoy life like I used to again, If there's one thing I hope doesn't change, it's the respect and gratitude we currently have for frontline workers and people in the NHS. The clap for our carers ended a few weeks ago, but we need to keep that same energy as we transition into our new normal. We need to vote in a way that protects the institutions that kept us alive. We need to hold our elected government representatives to account And we need to make sure that when we look back on those Thursday evening doorstep claps, we remember them as the claps and cheers of a nation that decided that the normal we'd allowed ourselves to slip into wasn't good enough. That the echoes of those claps and cheers aren't empty, but that they remind us of the nights we decided that something had to change. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Class of 2020. I would really love it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it so that it reaches even more students. 
If you want to get in contact or be a part of the podcast, email me at classof2020pod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at classof2020podcast. This podcast would not be what it is without the amazing students, graduates and experts who so graciously agreed to be interviewed. So I want to say a huge thank you to Amelie Inusa, Stephen Knowles, Brandon Manemo, Anza Ahmed and Eleni Tsiora.